Hi, Jason, the producer here. This episode's a little special because it's a podcast extra for another project that we've been working on called History Lab. In the History Lab series, Nicole and I went on an investigation into the first deposit into Australia's oldest bank. We dug through 200-year-old bank ledgers and pay slips in order to understand the murky origins of finance in Australia. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I highly recommend you do that first before listening to this. Think of it as a companion piece or a nice wine thoughtfully and appropriately paired with your meal. Okay, enjoy the show. So on this episode, we're speaking with Peter Doherty, an Associate Professor at Economics here at the UTS Business School, about what is money? Where does it come from? And how does it work? Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you. As you know, we've been delving into some of the history of money during colonial times, uh, but I'd like to go back even further. Uh, And if we think about kind of the course of human history more generally, do we have a sense about when and how money first emerged? Yeah, well, there's a long history about um, ancient economies, uh, such as, you know, the Egyptian economy, the Greek economy, the Roman economy, and money has existed um, you know, right through those periods of history because economic activity obviously has existed for that period of time and money and its functions really arise in the context of, you know, general economic activity and trade. Um, but I think the, the key thing to think about is conceptually what money does to facilitate things like trade and commerce. You know, what are the various functions that it performs and what characteristics... Um, enable it to, f- to perform those functions. In, in those early periods, money tended to be what we would call a commodity money. Mm-hmm. So it was some tangible uh, object that performed the functions that uh, facilitate trade. So this is the stories about seashells and, and yeah, so it on. could be something that was that something that was hard, tangible, and valuable that then you could exchange and you could uh, assume that other people who were engaged in commerce would accept. Mm-hmm. I want to kind of take a step back before there was kind of commodity money. From what I understand, that was kind of an innovation that a change up from the barter system where we exchange just goods and services. So, for example, in some of the work we've been looking at with this History Lab episode, we found out that in the early times, a lot of the work that people did was for barter in the sense that they were paid in provisions, paid in rum or paid in flour and so on. What are some of the inherent problems of relying on a barter system for economic exchange? Well, I guess the biggest problem is that it's incredibly inefficient. So if you think about, you know, perhaps I, um, I'm providing some kind of labour service to your household, mm-hmm. perhaps you're a slightly wealthier um, individual who is able to, to employ me, um, I, I need certain things like food and provisions. Um, you have those in excess and you're prepared to trade your... Um, food and provisions for my labour services. So this is this thing in economic theory called uh, the the coincidence of wants? Yeah, so this is called the double coincidence of wants. For us to trade, if there is no money involved, you have to have what I want and I have to have what you want. And you can see the inefficiency of it because if we're in an economy with just a few goods and services that I'm likely to want to either consume um, or sell, then in order to get what I want, I have to find someone who not only has what I want, but who wants what I have. And so over one or two 
transactions, that might be okay in a very, very simple economy. But over an economy that's got any number of goods and services that reflect, you know, some sort of economic development, that just becomes extremely inefficient and difficult to manage. And so what money does Mm -hmm. um, is it it provides um, an intermediary between those two um, legs of the transaction, right? So that when I want to sell my labour services, all you have to have is something that I can then use to buy the good that I want. So if you don't have what I want, it doesn't matter. And this is why money is called a medium of exchange. Yeah, precisely, because it facilitates trade, it facilitates exchange. Are there any other kind of key features or key advantages that we ascribe to money as a medium of exchange? Yes, you can, you can describe money as anything, which basically does three things for you. Um, the first thing is that it performs this medium of exchange function, so it facilitates trade. The second thing that's also really helpful is that it can be what's called a unit of account. So for trade to happen, you need to work out how much of the thing that I have am I going to give you for how much of the thing that you have that you're going to give me. And if you don't have money and you have to engage in um, the barter that you described earlier, then you can imagine there are lots and lots of different ratios of exchange that you would have to work out. How many hours of labour is a BMW worth? So this is what money does, it gives things a price. Uh, or it gives us a unit by which we can establish a price. Yeah, so, that, so, so instead of then in a barter economy having to work out lots and lots of ratios of exchange, you only need to express any exchange in terms of that thing and money. Okay, so if we take it back to the colonial situation, instead of having to figure out how much you know, a bag of wheat is compared to a gallon of rum versus an hour of service versus maybe some building supplies. And each of them, you've got to figure out their their different values compared to one another. Instead, you can actually just convert their value into a unit of account, a common unit of account. Which is money. Which is money. Okay, got you. And so it radically reduces the number of prices that you have to know about, the number of ratios of exchange. So that's the second function. Yep. And then the third of function is what we call a store of value. Um, because when you engage in a transaction and you accept money, uh, if it was something that was very perishable, then you would have to engage in the next transaction really quickly before the thing that you accepted lost its value. So ice cream. Let's imagine that ice cream was, the, uh, the, was money. So I, I do three hours' work and you give me an ice cream. The intention is not to eat the ice cream, but to use the ice cream to then go buy a BMW, let's say. But if I don't buy the BMW within 20 minutes, yeah. then there, go, there, there goes my money. So it has to be something that's uh, sufficiently durable, and um, it, that is it has to store value across time. I just wanted to unpick this issue about store value over time. Well, the most obvious reason is that not every exchange happens simultaneously. Yeah. So I'm going to supply my labour today but I'm going to want uh, food today, um, I'm going to want food next week. Economic activity is obviously constantly occurring, so if everything happened on the one day, if there was market day and you did all your transactions on that day, it might be okay to have something that didn't store value so well. But given that just life isn't like that, it has to have this minimum ability to take value across at least short periods of time, but the longer the better. Can we talk about different types of money? Because we've kind of touched on this a little bit. I just want to chart through the evolution of different types of money. I guess the first thing to do is to think about things. What, what are the characteristics of things that will perform those three functions? Yeah, yeah. 
and there are a few few characteristics that that do that for you. The first thing is that it has to be widely accepted. You have to know that when you accept something um, in exchange for your labour, that you've got the confidence that other people will accept that at some point in the future. And that's where the notion of something valuable comes in. If you exchange your labour for something valuable, then you're pretty confident this is something that other people want. So that's the first thing. Second thing is that it's really nice if it's standardised, if, if each bit of the commodity looks the same as all the other bits of the commodity so that you don't have to check that what you're being given is going to be accepted by someone else. So imagine that instead of using gold coin, what you used is gold, bits of gold nugget. Well, you know, each nugget can have a different weight, a different level of purity. So you would have to then verify that each time you engage in a transaction and accepted gold, it was really good enough that you could be confident someone else would accept. And so that's the value of coining. This seems like a pretty critical moment in the evolution of, of money, and I guess economics as well, where you go from, on the one hand, trading on something that's kind of inherently valuable and, and that you would have to weigh, for example, like, like ingots of gold, and just check that they're exactly still that same amount of weight. And then you shift to something like a coin, which is actually representative of value, but perhaps not actually intrinsically valuable itself. Uh, yeah, well, that was, an, that was another stage okay. um, of, of money, moving from commodity money to other kinds of money. Okay. The, the first kind of conceptual stage in the evolution of money is this idea of commodity money mm-hmm. and um, commodities that perform these functions really well. The, the next stage was the evolution of institutions getting involved in, okay. in money. And so the way this happened in somewhere like um, Britain is that since gold was the standard... Um, medium that everyone accepted, goldsmiths got involved in um, minting money for you, in getting, say, gold minerals into a, into a coin form. But eventually what happened is because there were security issues around money, you could actually not just ask a goldsmith to mint money for you, but you could ask them to look after it for you mm-hmm. to improve its security until you needed it again. And so what tended to happen then is that goldsmiths issued certificates of receipt for the money you'd lodge with them so that then later on you could go to them and get your gold coins back. Mm -hmm. And those certificates then started circulating in place of the money itself. So instead of doing that, you could deposit your gold coins with a goldsmith, get a receipt, go to London and then engage in a transaction where you hand it over the receipt instead of the Rather rather than the gold itself. And so that bit of paper that certificate actually starts having a value. And I guess because people trust that it has value, I guess that key thing there is it's still accepted that that certificate is is equivalent to the gold that's back at the goldsmith, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. If yeah. for some reason you thought that th- there was some question over the validity of the certificate, you wouldn't accept it. Yeah, and I think we saw this, we definitely see this back in colonial Sydney times where we have the issue of store receipts. For example, people would, they would bring their grain to the commissariat and the commissariat would give them a store receipt and then they could use that receipt from the store to go and exchange with other people. But then there was a proliferation of other sorts of bits of paper or notes and these certificates that are issued by other sorts of merchants as well. There was a mix of different types of coins. Including the British sterling coin. People were handing out these promissory notes or IOUs. 
large merchants will issue notes with their own name on it. Even the contract for George Street was done through the barter of rum. And if you read his personal diaries and the dispatches he sent to London, Macquarie immediately recognised this as a problem. His solution? Create a bank. So you actually get the same issue about the um, standardisation of the receipts, right? And so what happens is banks, these goldsmiths evolve into banks whose job becomes uh, trading in different types of money. Mm -hmm. So they will accept the heavy, difficult-to-manage metal money, but they'll give you a standardised receipt now that becomes effectively a banknote, and so that now becomes instantly recognisable so that when you hand it to someone, they don't have to verify that, yep, this is a company that will do what they promise to do. So banks were issuing notes and banks were, I guess, issuing these certificates or, in a sense, banks are issuing money. Were they, was there kind of competition in terms of one bank is putting out some money over here and another is putting out money over here? Was that happening? Yeah, so in the early stages of banking, um, banking was a private institution mm-hmm. and uh, as long as you had the, you know, the resources to run the company, mm-hmm. uh, you could set up a bank and start um, practising, uh, you know, the, the same way you can start any kind of company. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's what we would refer to as free banking, an era in which there is very minimal or zero regulation as we currently understand it for yeah. banks, no central bank, yeah. and instead you have 10 banks who all do the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They still would issue standardised notes so that you would know this is the Bank of England or this was the Bank of Scotland or this was the Bank of Manchester, so people knew who the reliable banks were. When did that change? When did you see that shift from like this world of free banking to the situation that we have now where, I mean, in Australia, all the banks uh, are using Australian dollars. It basically happened when in, in England, the Bank of England, which was just initially a private bank, which dates from the 1600s, started taking on the functions of a central bank. So just as individual people were depositing their gold with um, banks that were competing with each other for reasons of um, safekeeping, banks themselves started keeping reserves with the largest bank. And so what tended to happen was that banks identified the Bank of England as the biggest and strongest bank, and they kept deposits with the Bank of England so that if I had a customer in one part of England that wanted to get money to London, uh, I could effectively allow that customer to draw on my deposits with the Bank of England, me being another bank, so that they go to England and they can access some funds there, even though I don't have my own office. And so the Bank of England became not just a place that banks could keep reserves, but a place uh, where banks themselves could borrow money for short periods of time. And that was sort of the beginning of the interbank market and the the functions that we tend to think of as um, central banking. Of course, in Australia, we had no central bank at all until Commonwealth Bank was established in 1911, started functioning in 1912. The vision there was for it to become a central bank, but initially it was just a publicly owned bank, and a a similar kind of evolution happened. Okay, so... What is the added benefit of having banks involved in um, presiding over the exchange uh, in the economy? Yeah, so the, the big benefit of banks as opposed to just having a system of commodity money is that it increases the efficiency yet again. And so what happens is that 
bank notes then increase the efficiency yet again. So as long as the, they have that sense of authenticity that we discussed, then it means that um, you can go from one part of the country to another, or you have to carry as paper. You know it's going to be accepted, and so it enhances the, um, the efficiency of exchange. Um, notes also can have the characteristics of being issued in small enough denominations that they can facilitate a range of transactions oh, from yeah. small ones to big yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, this, this was one of the problems that we saw in the colony was that how do you pay for more incidental things? Because while there was the issue, I think, of large store receipts, for example, or they had big bills of treasury, how do you then go and just go buy an apple? Yeah. Yeah, you need the one pound notes or the yeah. 10 shilling yeah, coins. Yeah, or, or the one pence, you know. Yeah, yeah. 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 So that, that's an added advantage that, that bank notes can have because you can design them in a range of denominations. Um, they're transportable, as we said, and um, clearly they don't perish, right? So you can you'd know, hope not. You'd know that you know, when you engage in a transaction this week, the, the note's still going to be around in a month's time when you're, you know, saving up for that. Well, um, thank goodness our notes are now in plastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah what's the downside? Um, so there are, there are two immediate problems that arise when you think about a bank being involved in the monetary system as opposed to just notes and coins. Um, the first is that because now the bank's safe, you can have a, an effect um, where value, um, the medium of exchange, drains out of the circulation system um, through the process of saving. So let's imagine that um, a whole lot of people decide they want to work hard, save up for some future uh, purchase that is going to enhance their standard of living, but it's a, it's a way off into the yeah. future. Yeah. And so what happens is circulating medium drains into the banking system yeah. and that is going to reduce um, the level of activity, right? That money is not going to be spent buying other stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have the possibility that you can have deposits accumulate mm -hmm. and that will have a negative effect on economic activity. Just so I have this clear, are you talking about the... The, the shifting of the medium exchange being at, say, the coins and the banknotes, them going into the institutions. Yeah. You actually don't have as much coins kind of, and notes floating around yeah. that are enabling the transactions in the yeah, first place. Yeah, and people aren't going to be spending. Right? Yeah, so, okay. Um, so that's, that's one potential problem. But the second potential problem is the opposite one, and that is now banks realise that they've got all these resources sitting around while people aren't using it, so maybe what they can do is lend it out um, at interest to someone who's got the opposite problem. So um, banks can now lend money, and here the problem is what happens if uh, they end up lending more than they've received on deposit, which is possible because bear in mind that what banks are also doing is issuing notes. So when the bank makes a loan to someone, it's not the gold coin that they are um, providing, it's a bank note and they have control over the supply of banknotes. Yeah. So a big issue, uh, and this, this occurred a number of times, especially in England in the 17 and 1800s, is what happens if banks overissue yeah. banknotes. I've got one more question. And what I'm interested in is this idea of trust and why, because I've heard that money has, is referred to as 
being the most universal system of trust that humans kind of ever created. So why is that? Why is trust so fundamentally entwined with this idea of money? Well, I think the most important point in our monetary system where trust operates is actually not so much with the foundational concept of money as we thought about it with respect to commodities, but in terms of the role of the banks. So introducing banks, I think, uh, changes things completely. And that's for the very simple reason that when I deposit my gold coin with the bank, I want to know that I'm going to get it back when I ask for it. And that has to do then with this whole idea of regulating banks to make sure that when people ask for their deposits back, the bank is still going to be there and is going to be able to deliver on that promise. Because if that doesn't happen, that has really serious implications for the economic system. Because not only now are we using the medium that banks have issued to facilitate transactions, but banks are also facilitating activity by lending people money. And if the bank disappears, then when I start up my business and go to get a bank loan, there are fewer banks to facilitate those loans. So again, economic activity is negatively affected. And of course, that was a big problem with the events like the Great Depression and the GFC, that banks failed um, or potentially failed in those uh, events. And it meant that these sorts of facilitations weren't happening. Yeah. So this is why we, we actually need banks to have, we need to have trust in banks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.